You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writer Centre at writercentre.com.au. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 216 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo, and I'm here with the awesome and incredible and about to go on school holidays, Alison Tate. <laughs> How are you, Al? <laughs> well, I'm awesome and incredible and about to go on school holidays, which yes. will probably negate both of those first two things. No, but no. don't give it like that. Well, no, it's hard to be awesome and incredible in the school holidays, though. Usually I'm just kind of stressed. No, I'm, I'm relaxed and yet stressed. Relaxed and because I'm not doing anything and stressed because I'm not doing anything. What do you mean you're not doing anything? If you know what I'm saying. Well, it's just, you know, I'm not doing the things that I, I find it very hard to do all the things I need to do when I'm distracted oh, by see. kids. Do you see yeah, what I'm saying? Right. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. So what well, I end up doing is throwing throwing my hands in the air and going, I'll worry about that tomorrow. And then, you know, <laughs> the next day I'm like, I'll worry about that tomorrow and so on and so forth. Well, anyway. since the school holidays are not yet in full swing, what have you been doing? Well, as I discussed on my Facebook page yesterday, I had this grand plan that I was just going to write all of the words this week <laughs> and I have not – you know, I've written a Christmas shopping list and I have followed – I've had one of those weeks where it's just been all about following stuff up, you know? Oh, um, just yes. Yeah, just – and it's just been admin, 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 and mm. I have really achieved not much. What I have done, though, and this is an interesting thing, is I've, I'm working on a feature article for um, South Coast Style magazine and it involves 10 – 10 people under the age of 25. So I'm, um, so I can't call them kids, but they're, you know, young. Wow. Um, I know. And I'm, so I'm chasing up all these amazing, you know, creative, oh, let's call them kids, creative, <laughs> creative, amazing kids, trying to wrangle them to do this, to get this story done in January. And that's proving to be highly entertaining for all of us, really. Um, yes. So that's good. So I'm doing that. And what else am I doing? Oh, I'm just, you know, organising. Well, my, my son, uh, Book Boy, released his EP last week. So I have actually spent a lot of time at the post office. <laughs> oh, yes. Sending out yes. EPs. I have well, this massive stack. I know that you have been spending time at the post office because yesterday, late yesterday, I opened my mail. Oh, and. In my mail, I have to tell listeners, this was, I actually let out a scream. I literally screamed and everyone thought I was like having a heart attack or something because in that package were items representing two iconic musicians of our time. Now, <laughs> listeners, this was an incredible surprise to me from Alison. So iconic musician number one, 
Oh my God. I have to say I'm holding it in my hands as we speak. And you know that I love a blank notebook and you know that I love John Bon Jovi. Somehow Alison managed to find a an amazing blank notebook made from a real vinyl record with the covers were made from the real vinyl records from Bon Jovi's New Jersey album Oh My God. Oh my god! Oh my god! I, I, oh my my god. heart's beating faster even as <laughs> I'm speaking about this, and all I can say is, "Oh my god, Al, thank you." Oh, now, an even more iconic musician. Oh. So I got two things. Not only did I get this thing from Bon Jovi, who is like the ultimate, I got the EP of Book Boy, which. Absolutely surpasses the 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 Bon Jovi one. Oh my god! Let's not get too carried away, though. <laughs> Are we allowed to say Book Boy's name? I'm not. So yeah, I, well, I just, yes, I was because to, no, to we can Boy. because Book Book Boy is well and truly out there in the world. So yes. All right. So the 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 debut EP from Joe Visser, V I S S E R. Check it out amazingly talented musician. You're going to see much, much more of him in the years to come. In fact, very soon he will be getting notebooks from Joe Visser's merchandise, I'm sure. <laughs> yes, definitely <laughs> notebooks. How could you not have notebooks if you were, you know, also known as Book Boy? You would need yes, notebooks, wouldn't you? Yes. When he says to so, me, I need merch, I'll say, let's do notebooks. And he'll be like, that is so not cool, Mum. And I'll be like, that is the coolest thing ever. Exactly, Ever. exactly. But you know so, what? Let me just give a shout-out to Dave okay. at Funky Journals because I ran into Dave at Funky Journals when I was at Glebe Markets. I was wandering around Glebe Markets and mm. um, he was there with his uh, with his notebooks and they are made from, um, you know, damaged vinyl records. So he's not, you know, breaking proper ones, but if he comes across scratched albums and things like that, he makes these amazing notebooks out of them. And we will put a photo of Val's one in the, in the show notes so that you yes. can see. Um, and he had this great array and I actually got a uh, book boy, got one with the Rolling Stones, you know, a Rolling Stones album at it. And I'm standing there and I said to him, and I noticed that he had one from, um, uh, Oh, Guns N' Roses. And I said to him, you don't have Bon Jovi by any chance, do you? Because I'm thinking, like, this is Val's, like, perfect match of things right here. And he said, I don't have one with me, but I'm pretty sure I have got one in my, you know, shed at home. And I said, Dave, let's talk. And so he oh. he he made it especially for you, Val. The Bon Jovi one is especially oh for you. God. And uh, we organised to have a scene because I just thought I can't think of a better gift um, oh to give God. my amazing co-host than oh that particular God. notebook. So there you go. Well, I have to say thank you so, so much. I just, I I am beside myself. I really am. And <laughs> I everyone really did think I had a heart attack when I opened this. It was, it's, I'm just, I'm seriously beside myself. I'm, I'm beaming from ear to ear. You can't see it right now, but I'm so excited. Anyway, I will calm down now because uh, we need to do a podcast. 
Me too. But, um, and we've just done 10 minutes of podcast and have said nothing. So it might be time to move on, I think. All right. Sorry, guys. But anyway, thank you, Al. Also, a big shout out to Sarah Bailey, podcast listener, and who we recently had also as an interviewee on the podcast because last week she was announced as being part of the long list of the 2018 Indie Book Awards, which is, of course, the Independent Bookseller Awards. And uh, yeah, she was in the long list for uh, debut fiction, best debut fiction. So, I cannot wait. I think the the winners are announced in about in in the new year. Well, obviously, in uh, I believe in January, or or maybe the shortlist is in January. But anyway, we will keep you posted because uh, um, it's just going to be the first of many awards, I'm sure. So, congratulations to Sarah. Now, um, I have a little shout out as well oh, before yes. you move on. I want to give a yes. shout out to Shari Whitman. Hello, Shari. Shari is a recent listener and she's sifting through the old podcast episodes as she commutes into town. And she's just listened to episode number 19, where oh, clearly, gosh. and this is back in the realm, <laughs> 200 episodes ago, so I don't remember the details. Mm. Um, but we gave a shout out, obviously, to technical writers and, you know, what a, what a great skill it is. She has been tech writing for eight years and it isn't often that she hears recognition for that kind of work it made her smile and get warm and fuzzy inside so I just want to say a big shout out to Shari and all the tech writers out there terrific skill and I believe a very underrated one so well done Shari go you Absolutely. Big shout out to all the technical writers out there. All right. So let's move on to our links and uh, what's happening in the world of publishing and writing. Now, there is a great post. (laughs) I say it's a great post because um, we've interviewed Alison on what is middle grade fiction and should you write it? And it's on the Australian Writers' Centre blog. And of course, we'll put the link in the show notes, which you can find at soyouwanttobearwriter.com.au. And it is a really good breakdown on exactly what middle grade fiction is. Now, we won't repeat it now because of course you can read it for yourself. But what I would like to just cover, Al, is is the ages because I'm constantly finding people getting confused about what middle grade fiction is in terms of the age group. And I know that some people out there are very clear on it, but I, in my experience, the people I meet, the majority of people are not. So maybe if we can just cover that in the first instance, that would be great. Do you want to, do you want to take that away, Al? Well, look, I think the key thing that you have to remember with middle grade is that it's not a genre, it's a demographic. And mm. I, the other thing to remember is that it it sort of generally covers grades four to eight or, or roughly ages eight to 12. But the, the eight end of it is very much, you know, probably going to be your advanced readers who are looking for something more challenging. So when people say to me, oh, but you know, mine's sort of eight and I think it's more junior fiction and that, that eight demographic, eight to 10 demographic is, is a really interesting time for kids who are reading because you'll have those kids who have got the hang of it in grade one and have leapt ahead and are reading, you know, 60,000 words books by the time they're eight. But you will also have kids who prefer at that age group to have, you know, something that's got lots of pictures and very few words. So mm. it's it, you, it, you're not writing – what I'm trying to say here is you're not writing for every eight-year-old, okay? You're writing for – you're basically with middle grade, you aim your book at around the 10 to 12 mark or even 10 to 13 mark, but you, you're going to then sweep in those advanced readers from the bottom end and you're also going to have kids – kids who are 14 
or so, you know, yep. who prefer to read something that's not as – because, you know, a lot of YA can be quite challenging as far as themes and, and that sort of stuff is concerned. And so there's – you know, there are 14-year-olds who would rather read um, something that's more of an adventure than, yep. you know, that than, than that challenging. So – but it is roughly – you know, somewhere in that 8 to 12 mark is where you're writing for. I aim squarely at 10 to 12 when I write middle grade. I, I'm looking at 10-year-olds. I'm looking at sort of grade 5 up, um, but I do know that I have a lot of readers who are also 8. Do you know what I mean? So that's what I'm mm. saying. It's a, it, it's not. There's no hard and fast about this stuff, but you need to have a general gist of where you're aiming your story basically. And when you started writing your very successful Mapmaker Chronicle series, and actually I was talking to somebody yesterday who would, who just told me that they had finished the second book in the Mapmaker series, Woo-hoo. of course there's four, and they loved it. Um, and uh, when you were writing the Mapmaker Chronicles and now the more recent one, your Adaban Cipher series, um, did you sit down and think, I'm going to write a middle grade fiction, I'm going to target middle grade fiction, or did you just start writing and then it, be, you know, it emerged to become middle grade fiction. Do you know what I mean? Yes, I do know exactly what you mean. I'm going to think about that a little bit because it's a funny, it's a chicken and egg situation. Do you know what I mean? Like in the sense that, so when I wrote the Mapmaker Chronicles, um, I don't think I specifically ever sat down and thought I'm writing a book for 10 year olds here, but I had um, kids who were not, I had one, uh, my, my oldest son was nine at the time. I knew what he liked to read and what he was reading at that stage. We were reading because I get obviously, um, so I read a lot of stuff and they read a lot of stuff and I was reading a lot of stuff to them and with them. And, you know, there were books because, um, my friend book boy has always been quite an advanced reader. Like I found myself when he was six and seven, in middle grade fiction, like I was looking for things that were suitable for him in the sense that um, he wasn't going to read them in four seconds flat like he was with a lot of the um, junior stuff, but that he would, that wasn't going to be, you know, again, theme wise too challenging for him uh, because just because you can read something doesn't necessarily mean that you should. So yeah. I was looking for stuff that he, that he could read that was, um, that was going to be enjoyable for him on all sorts of levels, you know, comprehension wise and the whole lot. So I had been immersed in that middle grade world for quite some time. So when I sat down to write the book and it was, a, you have to remember like what it was about. It was about a, a race to map the world and a boy who didn't want to go and his age and everything about him. So when Quinn appeared, he was 14 and he was that kid and he had been at home all his life and he was the youngest, you know, brother and he was all of the things that he was. And so he, that, that was, that was where the story fit. That was, it was, so I wrote Mm. the story, but I wrote it also because I was influenced by a whole range of things that I was doing at that time, what I was reading at that time. And I had an ideal reader. So all of those things come into play. Mm. I don't um, think I would have ever have sat down and gone, I am going to write a middle grade <laughs> novel. Gosh, what will it be? That's not how it works. Yeah. No, but some people might. Some people well, might. Well, yeah, they might. But yeah. I, that's what I'm saying. Is it's, That's why I'm saying it's such a chicken and egg situation, yeah. I think, for me. Because it, to me it's about like it's like when I go to schools and I talk to the kids about where ideas come from and where the inspiration for my books comes from and stuff, there's this real – and, you know, it sounds a little bit voodoo in some ways, but it's not because you're basically standing there and all of these various threads of things that are happening around you come together to create the story mm. that comes out of you, you know. So, 
Yeah. Yes, it's it's very hard to describe, but I I do know what you're what you're talking about. Yeah. Um. So you can read the rest of that post on um the Australian Writers Centre blog, and we'll put the link in the show notes. It's a it's very good. It's very comprehensive. Deals with it step by step, and it's been written by um podcast listener Nat Newman. So thank you, Nat, for that. Now, also a podcast listener is Hannah Davison. Now, Hannah is in mm. our podcast listener group on Facebook, which is free to join. So make sure you join the listener community. Community, It'd be great to have you in there. Just a search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community on Facebook and uh, request to join. We'd love to um, uh, support you in your journey in writing. So every Wednesday we have a post. Do you want to describe what we do every Wednesday, Al? Yes, because last Wednesday I managed to post it on Thursday. So let's probably, let's let's. I know. Was so wasn't my finest hour? I have to admit, it was just a bit like, oh, oh, wait a minute, I forgot to put that up. Um, yes. So every Wednesday, and and it is all in position for this week, so we can happily say every Wednesday, uh, we have a thread in our podcast group, and it is basically a. It's called Writing Post Wednesday because. That's how we roll. Um, and it is a place for you to share your latest blog post or musings or whatever that have to do with writing or publishing or, you know, any aspect of of those industries. Um, mm. Because you know, we have a no self-promotion policy in the group, as you know, and, um, you know, I'm very hardcore about that. But so mm. this is your spot. This is your opportunity. This is where yeah. you get to share your thoughts and inspirations with the whole group, which is now 1,000 plus members. Like we've got a members, our membership is growing you know daily um so it's a place for you to you know to put your links and share each other's work and and comment like I really encourage people if you're in the group and you put your link up go and visit other people's links have a look at their work comment on their work like learn about the people around you I mean we talk all the time about the importance of um you know when you go to writers festivals or when you go to whatever of talking to the people next to you because the people next to you are the people that are at the same stage you're at sure. and you can all help each other. You know, that whole rising yep. tide lifts all boats stuff that, that people go on about. So oh, please, sure. um, you know, pop your links in. And, of course, Val and I are reading them as well and mm. we're always looking for things to talk about on the podcast. So who knows? It could be you. Yep. Absolutely. So Hannah has written a post called The Chewing Gum Theory, how to know when your manuscript is finished. And, of course, we'll put this link in the show notes so you can check it out, but she's recently um, written about it. And she basically talks about the fact that, you know, her her manuscript assessor said, are you happy with it? The it being a picture book manuscript that she's been toiling over for the past 10 months. And Hannah kind of had to think about it and uh, figure out whether her manuscript was ready to get out there in the world. Now, it's an interesting thing because it's like, you know, I've been recently been uh, discovering the world of art and painting and there is a point where your painting is actually finished but because you keep thinking that you can improve it or you just, just add that little bit there, often you just take it beyond that point and you stuff it up. I've stuffed up many, 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 many paintings as a result. And you really, I, I've, I'm now starting to recognise where that point is. And it's very mm. hard actually to stop yourself from try, from from not going over that line because you do think just that little thing will just improve it a little bit. Just that little thing won't stuff it up, but actually it will. Mm. 
So um, when do you think, Al, your manuscript is finished? How do you know when your manuscript is finished? Such a good question, Val. Look, I'm just, yeah. I'm actually, I'm reading, I'm a little distracted because I'm actually reading over Hannah's post again and her chewing gum theory about, you know, how you sort of like you have your fresh pellet of gum, which is your story, and then you have to, months of masticating, which just is a great subheading. Um, you have to then edit, you know, which is going over it and over it and over it and revising and rewriting and doing all of those things and then knowing when to stick it, like when do you stick it under the, when do you stick your gum under the park bench and call it finished? <laughs> and that's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a great analogy. Um, I think it's one of those situations where I personally, for me, um, a story is never finished. Like, and, and I know Kate Forsyth and I have discussed this on so many occasions. Um, you could go back and tinker with a story for the rest of your life. You could basically, I could go back and rewrite parts of the Mapmaker Chronicles tomorrow. She she has a, a book that, that came out 20 years ago um, that she would still like to make some revisions <laughs> to. You know, it's been in print for 20 years and she yes. would still, like, there's bits of it that she would fix. But there comes a time when you have to, you have to understand that you have have done what you can. It is never mm. going to be perfect. And um, I think coming to that realisation of knowing that you – that and, and it's a disappointing thing for a writer because when you have the genius idea, because, of course, every idea is genius, when you have the genius idea for a story, you – it's so bright and shiny and gorgeous, right? And you you just know it's amazing. And then you actually write the thing and nothing that you ever write can ever match up to that first initial genius idea that you had. Nothing. It's never going to get there. Um, So all you can basically do when you learn this with practice is you do the best you can with it, then you give it to someone else to give you feedback on, which is what Hannah's done, which is great. And then you have a look at their feedback and you think about their feedback and you decide which bits of their feedback you're going to take in and which you're not. Um, And then you make it the best you possibly can on the day. And that's, that's really, that's what you're, that's, that's all you can basically do because once it goes out there, once it's published and it's out in the world, you have to basically just walk away from it and knowing that it then becomes someone else's story. Like it becomes, you know, and it's really funny because I've had people email me, two people have emailed me in the last um, couple of weeks, which is hilarious, asking me how to pronounce things in my books you know, because oh. it's a, the class having discussions. And it, it's, it's it's that whole thing oh. of like, well, this is what it sounds like in my head. This is yes. what it sounded like when I wrote it. But if it's, if you're reading it, it's however you want it to sound. You know, it's that it's that whole thing of like whatever you read, um, that is how it sounds. Because it's your story once it goes, you know, once it goes out there, it's your story. So it's um, it's an interesting thing. But what you do learn what you do learn as you kind of get more practiced at it is that there is a point. See, art is slightly different to, I guess, writing in the sense that you, like once you put the extra paint stroke on, it's very hard to delete it, right? Yeah. Whereas whereas with writing, you can delete and you can go back mm. and you could sit there editing your thing forever if you wanted to, if that's really what you are going to do. Um, but then you don't, you, it will never get beyond that. You will never send it out. It will never be published because you will be still sitting there trying to make it perfect. And I think what can happen with that is that the more you tinker with it, the more you try to make it perfect, the more, it, there comes a point where you can polish it away to nothing and it yeah, becomes yeah. just nothing. 
It becomes yeah. flat and it becomes – and you've managed to polish all the life out of it, all the things that made it interesting, all those tiny imperfections, all that, you know, all of that stuff that you maybe decided didn't sound writerly enough or whatever it is that you're trying to do, you can polish that and polish that and polish that and then you have nothing. So mm. you've got to remember that there's a very fine line between making it shiny and wonderful and then just, you know, polishing the absolute life out of it. And you you still have to be in it. It's really important that you're still there. That voice of yours is what makes it so important. So um, that's what I find. I find that when people try to polish, what they're trying to do is make it sound like someone else or make it sound mm. like something else or make it make it literary with a capital L or make it, you know, whatever it is that they're trying to do. And, and what they do is polish the life out of it. So, yep. you know, there's a fine line. And you do learn more about it the more that you do it, which is why – which is why, you know, your first draft is never going to be it and your first book may not be the book that is published because by the time you get to the third one, I'm speaking <laughs> from practice experience, by the time you get to the third one, you have a much clearer idea of when to walk away from it. Yes, absolutely. I'm, in fact, I don't think I could add anything to that because it, you've, you've summed it up perfectly. So, hey, what she said. You know, <laughs> <laughs> and thanks so much, Hannah, for writing such a great post to give us, you know, something to talk about. We love that. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah, and uh, make sure you check out Hannah's post as well. So let's move on to our competition this week, which I love because, as you know, I love little doggies, and so do you. Um, so this week. Our competition is you have a chance to win two, one of two copies of Dogs with Jobs by Laura Greaves. Now, Laura um, has been a previous interviewee on this podcast in uh, when we spoke to her about her last book about dogs and she mentioned that she was writing this one. Well, it's out now. So this is Extraordinary True Stories of some of the hardest working dogs in the world. Meet Molly Polly, the diabetes alert dog whose round-the-clock job is to keep her two young owners healthy. Bailey, the assistant director of Seagulls, who keeps the pesky birds away from the heritage vessels at the Australian National Maritime Museum. And Daisy, the collie mix, who's a full-time guide dog for another dog. Oh, so cute. Really? So cute. Oh, my God. I love Daisy already. From inspirational moments of bravery to dogs doing the jobs that no one else can, these are the life-affirming stories of the most remarkable dogs on the planet. And if you would like to win a copy of this super cool idea of a book, then go to writercenter.com.au slash win and uh, make sure you enter before the 18th of December. So that's writercenter.com.au com.au slash win for dogs with jobs. Now, are you ready for the word of the week, Al? <laughs> I am so ready, Val. Did you laugh? Did you laugh so much at that post in the So You Want to Be a Writer yes. podcast Facebook group? I laughed so, so much. I, I Honestly, I, I'm having to look now to remember who it was, but I just... <laughs> Can you remember? Can you remember? We should be more organised. We're not organised enough for this stuff, Val. We need to get more organised. I'm still getting over the post that we discussed a little while ago about the um, little three-year-old who was in the car in the um, baby seat and, and the podcast came on 
<laughs> and I was saying that it's episode whatever <laughs> and I'm here with Alison Tate and then the three-year-old goes, so how are you, Al? <laughs> Still getting over that one. <laughs> All right, here we go. Marinda Young and she has put up a librocubicularist is a person who reads in bed and she's popped it up and she's like, would Valerie Koo like to confirm the accuracy of this claim? If so, how's that for the word of the week, Alison Tate? Were you ready for that? So ready. <laughs> it's just like I can confirm that I was indeed not ready at all. It's very funny. I tell you what, yeah. Thank you so much for that, Marinda. You really gave me a laugh. Yes. That. I laughed so much. Anyway, I distracted. Let's go back. Are you ready for the word of the week, Al? So ready. Okay. Good. Okay. Awesome. Now, this word is, it's unusual, but it's real. It's in the McRae Dictionary. Shufiti. That's S-H-O-U, like the shoe on your foot. And then fiti, it's one word, F-I-T-I, shoe fiti. Do you know what it is? I, I don't know what it is, Val. Well, it sounds like confetti or graffiti made from shoes, but it's not. It's actually the practice of tossing shoes joined by the laces over power lines or high branches on trees. Mm. Wow. I always That's thought a thing. that was like a signal that. Oh my god! Me too. I was house. just about to say exactly the same thing. <laughs> I've had endless conversations with people walking down the street, usually after I've had too many beers at closing time. And you know, you walk past, and there they are. Yes. And there's the whole: Does this mean that this is a drug house? There's, you know, like all yes. of that going on. But no one's ever confirmed it. So you kind of like, well, then is it just urban legend? And in actual fact, it's just art. Val. It's shufiti. Yes. It's shufiti. Okay. So you try and use that in a blog post or a tweet or a, a social media update, listeners, and let us know if you do. Or let us well, just or a send picture. us Share some. a picture. Exactly. <laughs> Photographic evidence. <laughs> oh, dear. <clears throat> so, yes. Oh, I'm losing my voice, Al, so you might have to take over for a minute while I have a glass of water. Okay. I don't quite know what to say next though, because we're going to the interview and the interview is actually your interview this week. And so therefore you're going to have to interview or introduce the interviewee because I'm not exactly sure even who it is. Have you had <laughs> All right. Yet? I'm sorry. I, I had talking? my glass of water. I Hi. had a really interesting interview with author Brett Battles and we go through his journey from traditional publishing through self-publishing. We talk about which one he likes better. Uh, we Ooh. talk about his tactics and his strategies and the fact that even though he has been indie publishing since 2011, so for the last six years, he has made in excess of six figures just from his indie publishing. So it's it was a really, really enlightening and useful chat. I hope you find it interesting. Thanks so much for joining us today, Brett. Well, thanks for having me. Now, Brett, we're talking um, – obviously uh, online. However, you are based in California and you are the author of seemingly countless books. <laughs> but before we go into them, we won't go into all of them because you're an author of over 30 novels. Perhaps you can just tell us about your most recent one, which is out now. 
Yes. Well, yes, exactly. It, it came out December 12th. It's um, called uh, Town at the Edge of Darkness. It's the second in my uh, XCOM series, which is um, a kind of a spy thriller, um, helping people who need help kind of series that's a spinoff from my very popular Jonathan Quinn spy series. Um, so that just came out and I'm very excited about it. And so far the early reviews have been great. So I right. can't wait for how, more people to get a hold of it. <laughs> how would you describe the genre that you write in mostly? Well, I, I would say that, um, I, I actually have, uh, a couple different genres I write in a lot, though I would probably put the, uh, the over, um, um, label of thriller over everything because I have my spy thrillers that I, that I do that are my, the Quinn novels, for example, which are very popular and, um, and, and the XCOMs. And then I also, um, do some just basic, just straight thriller, um, not like spy based, but you know, crazy things happening. People need to do stuff or they're, everyone's going to die kind of stuff. <laughs> and then I also, then I also have my, uh, do, uh, do some, um, what I would call present day sci-fi. It's set in the here and now for the most part, but there is definitely a thriller aspect to those stories too. Um, that I, I, I guess I can't write anything that's slow is, is kind, of, <laughs> kind of where it comes down to. I'd love to, but I don't, I can't seem to do it. <laughs> okay. So clearly there's a common thread. Now, are you a reader of thrillers as well? I am. I definitely am. I, um, I grew up reading, I started off reading sci-fi, just straight sci-fi because I, my dad loved it. And he, and so when I was like eight or nine, that's what I started reading. And then I moved into like the Robert Ludlums and uh, the Alistair McLean and the uh, uh, Jack Higgins and, and, and Thomas Harris and all those kind of thrillers of the 70s and 80s and um, uh, those kind of things. So I really got into that. And then I branched out and read a lot more of those as, as I started writing more and everything. Now it's I've actually kind of circled back and I tend to be reading a lot more science fiction lately. Um, just because it's something that uh, is enjoyable to me and it and it harkens back to that first love of reading, you know, mm -hmm. but I do occasionally still uh, jump in and grab just a regular old, you know, good old down home thriller now and then too. <laughs> so you have written over 30 novels. Can you just cast your mind back many, many novels ago <laughs> when you first got into writing? Just tell me a little bit about how you – started writing what sure. you were doing at the time like did you have a day job and you know that sort of thing and how you got your first novel out there right okay um well in in honest in, you know it really starts way back because um i knew since i was in fifth grade which is uh i'd be 11 years old I knew then and I was telling people then that I was going to be a novelist, uh, you know, not having a full idea of what that might entail, but yeah. knowing how much I love stories and I just wanted to tell stories. So that it's always been in my head that that's where I wanted to go. And I, I would I would write stuff on and off um, as I, as I was growing up. And um, I, I didn't when I went to college, I didn't actually go in for English. I, I, I went into television and film because I figured I needed to to have a real job while I while I wrote. 
and um, and I ended up working in television for 20 years and um, was writing on the side, um, like, bef- you know, mornings before I would go to work or in the afternoons or whatnot. I, I wrote my first full novel um, back in 1991, I'm going to say. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and uh, it's. Uh, it is, it is one of the, it is a, one of those famous desk novels that will never see the light of day because it is so horrible. But (laughs) I, you know, I didn't think so at the time. And of course I sent it out and I got a hundred rejections on it naturally. Thank God. Um, Mm -hmm. but the thing is those first novels, you got to write those. Those are the, um, those are the starter novels. Those are the things that teach you how to, um, uh, how to write and everything and prove to you you can actually finish. You know, yes. the, the thing that I always tell people here, it's a baseball analogy, so I'm not quite sure how well it will translate. But um, when you're, uh, you know, when you go out to, uh, if you're going to be a baseball player, you decide you're going to be a baseball player. The first thing you do is not um, play your first game in the center field for the New York Yankees, which is the biggest <laughs> team in the biggest position. So you're yes. not playing striker for the, for man United, your first time you're playing football. You know, yes. it's, it's one of these things you, you have to, you have to go through the practice. You have to play these games at, at totally lower levels. So you're writing at totally lower levels. you got to finish that first book and, you know, occasionally somebody sells their first book. Congratulations to them. But the mm-hmm. most of us don't get that. Yes. Um, and so uh, the same thing happened with my second book, but I improved. Um, that book went into um, uh, into a desk drawer. Um, I, there was actually about a, uh, I would say about an eight year gap between those two books. Um, mm. But but then I, I really at that point though when I started the second book I'm really I really dove into writing as a um, I, I I go I, I if I if I don't do this now I'm never going to do it. So I wrote that book. As soon as I finished that one, I wrote my third book, which ended up being The Cleaner, which is my first published book. But we'll get to that mm-hmm. in a second. Yep, and sure. then uh, I, I so I both of those I sent out that second book and I got a whole bunch of rejections, put it in the drawer. I sent mm-hmm. out The Cleaner a ton of places, got a whole bunch of rejections, was going to put it in the drawer. A <laughs> friend of mine was being published by this small publisher in Los Angeles at the time. And he said, send them the book, the whole book. I'll tell them it's coming mm. and they'll take a look. I promise they'll at least take a look at it. I go, great. So I send it off to them. And in the meantime, I write my fourth book mm-hmm. and which, uh, uh, now if we're counting, my first book was what would be an uh, urban fantasy. My second mm-hmm. book was, uh, like a present day science fiction. My third book was, uh, the spy thriller. My mm-hmm. fourth book was my take at a lit novel. Although there oh. is some, uh, you know, there, there is some, uh, murder S stuff going on in it too, but, but nonetheless, it's a, it's a lit mo- novel more than anything. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm right. I write that book and, um, about 11 months later, I've totally forgotten about the first book for the most part. I mean, the, I'm sorry, book three, the cleaner, I've forgotten about this and I figure I'm just moving on. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm sitting at Starbucks doing edits on the, you know, just f- finishing edits on the, the fourth book, be, uh, thinking that I'll be sending it out pretty soon. Yeah. And I get a call from uh, this guy named Jim at mm-hmm. uh, Ugly Town uh, P- uh, Publishing, um, which, uh, you know, and, and he starts talking to me about my book and, and, and how much he liked it. And I had to stop him like, 
I, we were talking, I don't know, five, 10 minutes. And I, and I finally stopped and I would go say, I would go, wait, are you saying you want to buy my book? <laughs> and he said, yes. And I'm going, and I honestly cannot tell you what he said after that point. But, uh, <laughs> so, so I ended up um, getting a deal with this small publisher in Los Angeles. Uh-huh. Um, so I'm thinking, Oh, great. I've made it. Everything's wonderful. Um, six months later on, they end up having to file bankruptcy and they haven't oh. brought my book out yet. Oh. And, and I'm thinking, Oh crap. I'm back to, I'm back to zero again, mm. but I'm not because they're good guys and they, and they like my book and, um, they, you know, they had some contacts at other publishers and they sent my book to a publisher at Bantam Dell, which is a imprint of Random House. Yes. And, and she read the book and then she called me and we talked for an hour and she ended up buying my book from them and then giving me a three book contract. So I went from this tiny little, uh, self, uh, not self, a uh, tiny little, uh, small publishing house, which was a great, very prestigious house to this really big, I mean, to random house at the time, you know, well, still one of the biggest publishers in the world. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I did very well by that. It, it, it worked out very well for me. Yes. Um, so, so that, and, and all the time I'm writing, I've still got my, my full-time job and I'm, I'm writing, I get up early, you know, 5 AM, whatever, mm. 4, 4.30, AM, write for an hour or two, go to work after work. If I have time, I'll write for a little bit there. I also, um, uh, I, I, I kind of, um, planned my life so that I chose a place to live that was walking distance to my office, which is very unusual in Los Angeles. So right. it was 10 minutes from my living room to my desk at work from, by foot. So I didn't have to worry about, uh, I mean, I, what that does is buy me an hour on at both ends of the day, really, as far yeah. as travel and everything. So I had that, I had, I was able to give myself more time to write. And, and that was really the motivation to do that because I didn't want to, to waste yeah. time just sitting in a car when I could be working on what I really want to be doing. That's so, amazing. uh, yeah, so, so I, that was my first book. Um, um, uh, my, I, I, when I, when my second book, that was in 2007, my second book came out in 2008. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had also, um, because of the way publishing works, uh, at the big houses, um, I had already turned in and had a, accepted the third book, um, in the summer of 2008. And in August of 2008, um, I, that I, the, I pitched, you know, for a new contract because I've, I'd fulfilled this contract and they gave, and, um, mm. random house gave me, a, a two book deal, but it was large enough that I felt confident that I could at least quit my job for three years. I might have to be, it might be a little, a lean three years, but I, but I, I could give myself three years and, and, wow. and you know, my whole target then what had, has always been to write full time. Yes. So in 2008, I went, uh, full time writing in the fall. Um, uh, ironically one week before the Lehman brothers and stock and all the, the crap Lehman brothers oh, went under yes. all the crash. So, so thank God that happened after that point, or I don't, or I think that, tr- uh, contract might've been, um, pulled back before I signed it, but there, it wasn't, you know, completely honored. Um, so that was great. 
the problem was with that, with, with the late, uh, the Lehman brother stuff and all the financial stuff that was going mm-hmm. on worldwide and, uh, and the rise of eBooks and everything, the, the publishing industry kind of went into a terminal oil starting in late 2008. Um, it, you know, in many ways it's still going on. Yes. And, and my, my editor, uh, seeing the writing on the wall at, at where she was left to another publisher, took a job at another publishing house. And mm-hmm. then, uh, um, and then I was put with a, a junior editor who let's just say we did not get along. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, uh, random, uh, random house went ahead and they merged two of their, uh, imprints, ba- um, Bantam Dell, which I was under and Ballantine became one. And, when they did that, the head of, of, of each of those, they, they only need one head when they come mm. together and before the, the head of uh, Bantam Dell, which they call her the publisher or the head of a, a division is the publisher. The publisher for Bantam Dell was my biggest supporter. You know, he's, she was great. She would, you know, he was really always looking out for me, but mm. she got busted. And now I had nobody there who wanted me anymore. My book right. suddenly went from a hardcover first release to just straight to mass paperback. And so my last two books had no real, um, uh, support or mm. no hardcover and everything. And that's fine. That's business. That was their, um, you know, their decision to do. I get that. Mm. Um, you know, I, I hold no ill will about it or anything. I I'm bummed because, you know, I think we really had something, but I think part of it was the timing, you know, the timing with the, um, with the financial crisis and everything. And so, um, I quickly got those two books done and, um, and approved. And, Mm -hmm. and then it was time for a new contract in 2010. Um, Mm -hmm. and I, you know, I knew they didn't want me and I really didn't want to stay there anymore because I would, I wouldn't, didn't want to be someplace that didn't want me. Right. So, um, uh, I was probably, you know, I had already decided with my agent that we would probably reject whatever offer they came at us with in case, unless it was, you know, I'm, un, uh, I mean, we had to accept it. One of those kind of things, but, um, uh, they did me the favor of letting me go without giving me an offer. Um, mm-hmm. so I, I found myself in the fall of 2010 rudderless, um, mm. and still work. I mean, I'm now a full-time writer for two years but yeah. now I don't have a contract. Right. Um, mm. so, uh, uh, I, when I do, I, I talked to my, um, agent and we said, okay, here's what we're going to do. I'm, mm. you know, write a book and I, I'm going to try to get you a new um, deal somewhere. Yeah. And I've also been hearing a lot about the, um, the ebook and, and independent publishing. I had some friends who had been doing very successfully by it. Um, yep. you know, and I talked to some of them like Joe Conrath and Blake Crouch and, and, um, and, and others like them. And we were talking, I was getting their feedback and I thought, okay, I'm going to, I'm a fast writer. So I'm going to write two books, mm. one you can send out and one I'm going to try to self publish. And long story short, I ended up self-publishing both of them, and I basically haven't looked back since. Um, right. Although I did have a little, I flirted a little bit with. Uh, I did something through Forty Seven North, which is Amazon's 
traditional publishing thing. But other than that, so that that's kind of the story. I actually answered a lot more than what your question was, but it, no, you know, no, yeah, that's fascinating. <laughs> so basically, from 2010, after your fifth book, and you've been self-publishing apart from the flirtation with uh, Amazon's. That is correct. Publisher. I think I have. Um, uh, let's see this book coming out or that's just come out is my 32nd. So, um, seven of my books are not, are, are traditionally published. So 25 books self-published wow. plus short stories and, uh, um, and, uh, um, a novella. Well, I mean the self the, the cool thing about self-publish, I mean, many, many cool things about, um, going indie is that, I'm, I'm not tied to only one book a year and I tend yes. to write fast so I can write as, you know, I'll get as many books out a year as I, as I can write. Um, I'm not tied to a single genre so I can break mm. out and start doing some of the sci-fi stuff that I've always been interested in doing. So, mm. you know, that, that, all that stuff has been great, you know, freeing in ways. So you've obviously very successful as a self-published, as an indie author. Cast your mind back to the first book, you know, so 25 books ago. <laughs> right. And yeah. did it, like, was it an easy decision? Was it, did it freak I you out? How did you? scared yeah. out of my wits um, mm -hmm. because, you know, it, up until around that time, you know, the, the stigma with self-publishing and, and all that was like, oh, it's just vanity publishing. You're only doing it for yourself. And you're, oh, you're, you're, you've suddenly become this lowly type of writer if you're going to succumb to doing this kind of thing. And, and it wasn't, while yes, I had some friends that were having some success at it. That wasn't a guarantee I was going to have any success at it. And my biggest fear was ever having to go back and do a desk job again. And, mm -hmm. and it remains my biggest fear. You know, it always will be there with me until I get to the point where I, I don't have to worry about that. But, mm -hmm. um, uh, so, so yes, I was very feel for, fearful that year. Um, and that's why I, I put out a ton of stuff that first year, because I had a couple of books that I had, um, stockpiled, um, that, that lit novel that I mentioned earlier, I had actually written a, a, a middle school um, book the year before that um, uh, I said, I'll just put that out. I had um, a couple of other things. I did a, a an origin um, short novel for my Quinn series that I could put out. I had some short stories and everything. I think I put out seven different things that first year. Um, uh, you know, many of them were, were stuff that weren't written that year. I'm not saying they were all written that year, but I, you know, mm. I tried, my idea was get, I mean, what stuck with me is, um, Joe Conrath, Jay Conrath, um, uh, who's really gotten into this. He said to me, he goes, the most important thing is your digital shelf space and getting as many product, many things up there as, as possible. I mean, quality things, of course, but getting as much up there as possible because it makes you more vi visible. And that mm -hmm. shelf space, unlike uh, at a physical bookstore where they're going to pull your shelves off to put somebody else's up there, you don't lose that shelf space on, on, uh, you know, on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Kobo yeah. or whatever you're on. Yeah. And so now when you look up your name, they'll see, oh, there's like 10 books because I don't like to start reading somebody and there's only a book or two. And then I, what do I do now? I can't go through all their stuff, but now, you yeah. know, so you get as much up there. So I took that, um, uh, into, uh, into my mind and I kind of pushed that through, but that first book, um, 
was that was little girl gone. And, um, I, I did that one month and the next month I, I, I published a book called sick. And, uh, I literally was every day and sometimes several times a day checking on sales, seeing how many mm-hmm. sales I, my stomach would clinch or unclinch depending mm. on how well a particular day went. And I knew that, you know, it, it, it had to build, you know, it wasn't just a, a going to just ha- a rocket overnight kind of thing. Um, mm. But my idea was that I'm building the snowball and the more stuff I can add to the snowball, the bigger the snowball can become. Um, but I'm, I'm checking it and I'm just going crazy. And I remember seeing um, Blake at uh, a conference and, and I was telling him about this and he goes, you got to stop that. You go, yeah, you go nuts. You, you can't check that every day. And <laughs> you go once a month. And I go, oh, right. That, <laughs> that actually makes more sense, doesn't it? <laughs> and from that point on, I mean, I, I, I only check once a month, if that sometimes now, you know, I, I do. Wow. I mean, yes, I kind of check. Maybe it's a month and a half sometimes. I, I try not to get into the minutia of the day today too much. Yeah. Because drive you batty, man. Just go right nuts. Off the- oh my God. It made it hard to write because I'm all worried yes. about sale. You know? So we, you, predominantly your books are distributed, um, in ebook form via Kindle. Is that correct? For the most part. Yeah. I mean, I, I do have some, uh, some of the other ebook, uh, platforms, but I yep. have a quite a few of them are through the select program in, in Kindle, just because even when I was spreading everything out, 95 to 98% of my sales were Kindle anyway. And it just made more sense to do this. And then I get the added reads and, and, um, for lending library and everything like that. So, so from, you've gone indie since 2010, uh, Uh, technically 2011 was when I actually published, um, the, the, the stuff, but yes. So 2011. So from a financial point of view, what can you tell us about the difference between, you know, what it was like before and since you've gone indie? Sure. Um, well, I would say that that first year was very touch and go um, because, you know, I was, I, you know, I only had a few properties up and they can only make so much, mm-hmm. but I could see that it was getting better. And mm-hmm. there was a month that first year that I knew if I could get past, I think it was October, mm-hmm. you know, and this is me looking at it from like July. If I could make it past October, I was going to be okay. Um, uh, and be, because it just, you know, I, 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 I was really just like living on the margin, right. You know, like mm. you know, just making enough to, to get by and everything. Um, and I just made it through that October and I mm-hmm. haven't looked back since. Um, wow. I would say, and, and, and from there, um, 2012 was a really good year. 2013 was even better. And I bought a house that year. Uh, I didn't pay, I did pay for the whole thing, but I did buy a house. Uh, (laughs) None um, of us do really. (laughs) So 2014 was even better than 2013, 2015, even better. Um, 2016, 2016 came down a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, and then this year has been down from 2016. So this, so I, I've been going in a, a, in a not, the right way kind of trajectory at the moment, but I'm trying to do things now to, um, uh, 
correct that. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, that's just a, I, I'm, I'm confident that things are going to be fine and continue on, but, um, uh, uh, yeah. So, I mean, but it, when I say it's come down a little, it's still a very nice number that, uh, you know, that I, I mean, I'm still, you know, over well over six figures. I mean, not over six figures. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in a six figure income, um, yes. that is, uh, um, uh, more than just barely six figures. If well, that makes that's, sense. that's, that's pretty fabulous. Yes. So, um, now after 25 books, what have, what have been the biggest lessons that you've learned to self-publishing success? Well, I think, um, I don't know if they're lessons or it's, it's, they're almost obvious, but I don't think we always all see it. And that is, um, you know, get yourself a good editor, mm. make sure you, you, you have, uh, a good proofreader, copy editor, um, mm -hmm. uh, make sure you do a cover that doesn't look like your neighbor down the street did it <laughs> who doesn't know what they're doing, you know? Because yeah. there's so many, I mean, I look online sometimes or I see people advertising their books and you look at their cover and you know, okay, that's clearly self-published. Um, the book may be great. They probably didn't, didn't want to spend a lot of money on a cover or they had a friend who said they could do it. Maybe they personally don't have a lot of graphic experience or anything. So when they see it, they say, yeah, that looks fine. Mm. Truth of the matter, it doesn't look fine. Um, mm. You know, it looks exactly like it is. I mean, you want to cover that could look like it came off of a book out of New York or, or, you know, out of one of the big publishing houses. I, I don't want any of my uh, readers to even wonder about who the publisher is because readers don't actually care about that, but they do carry. I mean, when you say, you know, the old saying of don't judge a book by a cover uh, by its cover, I mean, it, everybody does. I mean, yes. they say it because that's exactly what people do and they will continue doing that. So you need to have a cover that is going to be visually stimulating and, and interesting and, um, well put, to, you know, well put together. And I, I find the thing that most people don't get right on, on the, um, uh, the ones that you can tell or not, they're not get paying a lot for or the, mm. the artist isn't getting it or stuff. The, the, the thing that really tends to be missing, although sometimes it's the imagery itself or how badly it's Photoshopped, but <laughs> it's really font choices and the, um, yes. and the, and the, and the, uh, how you treat the fonts on the cover themselves that mm. makes the difference. Um, because you know, they'll, people are just using the basic fonts they have. It's almost like they're just typing it on sometimes. <laughs> And, yes. and you can't do that. You know, it, it, that's, that's, you know, it's crazy as it seems. That's really important. I actually, in that 20 years, I said that I work in television. Most of that was spent, um, in television graphics. So, um, I was not a graphic designer, but I worked with graphic designers every single day. And, uh, uh so I got a good education in that. Thankfully for myself, I could never design my own cover. I, I, I have no, um, um, uh, skill in that way. But what I do know is I can see when something looks good or not, or I, yes. you know, I, I, I know the difference between something that looks cheap or something that looks incredibly professional. And if, if a, a, a writer can't know that themselves, they need to find a friend who does know that to help yes. them with that. 
you know, just to ask back to the sounding board. And clearly you have an understanding of branding because one of the things about your covers is they're, it's, they're, they are clearly Brett Battle's covers. There's Absolutely. a look that you, consistency, which I think exactly. is important. Yeah, Exactly. And I have several different series. And if you look at each series, you know, they are consistent within that series. Yes, as and then, well. Yes. Uh, as well. And then there is a definite consistency to how my ha- name is handled throughout I mean, for the most part, through, throughout the whole, all the books. And um, yes, and that, that, that also comes back from my, my um, television background because branding was what we did. We branded television networks. We branded television shows. So I understand the, the, the need to, to make everything look good and cohesive together. And um, it is so important in, in book covers because your, your brand, your name is – all you have, you know, and if you got somebody who liked your other book and they're looking for something new and they see another cover and they go, Oh, Oh, I know that guy. You know, I recognize that's this, that cover looks similar to this or not similar, but there are aspects of it. And Oh, I remember him, you know? Yeah. I like his stuff. I'm going to, I'm going to get his stuff, you know? Yeah. You have to create your own brand. Absolutely. Yes. It looks great. So this month, um, it's the XCOMs, which is Town at the Edge of Darkness. Now, I know that you've mentioned that um, in the release month of a book, you could sell anywhere between three to 9,000, depending on you know a range of factors, which is yeah, pretty many, fantastic. Many yeah. Sorry, what was that? I said, yeah, many, many factors. <laughs> yes, many factors, yes, yeah. which, is pretty, which is pretty fabulous because that's only during release month. Now, presumably after um, you've got 25 books out there, uh, you, your monthly or your quarterly or yearly or whatever in- income right. is actually a combination of or accumulation. Like you say, it's that snowball of, it's my of snowball. the other books. That's exactly right. It's the snowball. Uh, it's right. everything adding in because even the books that I released back in 2011, mm. you know, they're selling anywhere from 75 to 125 copies each every month, which might not sound a lot. But when you're talking about 10, no- you know, or 10 novels send- selling that much, I mean, that starts to add up. And then yeah. uh, you, there's 25 and everything's selling something every month, you know, some a lot more than others. And, um, you know, it just kind of piles on and, and, and just keeps, it, it, it all works together to create that snowball. Exactly. Yeah. So lucky you're a fast writer. So yes, obviously I, you're also not short of ideas. You're no, not short of ideas. Now no. No. <laughs> I want to talk about that because writing so many books, um, right. is, is, you know, it's, it's, it's very, very prolific. What, do you do? What's your process in terms of your ideas? Do you come up with heaps and write them all down, and then decide which ones to pursue, or do you stick with one and map out the entire plot? How, just tell me a bit about the process. Sure, sure. Um, well, there are uh, the, the way I look at it. Every year is I have three to four slots for books. Uh, in the past, it's always been four. Now it's more like three um, mm. uh, because I, I just, you know, it kills me sometimes to write four books a year. Uh, mm. But um, I know that at one of those slots is going to be my Quinn book because that's my biggest selling series. He's my tentpole. So I always 
have to come back to Quinn. And, and now that I'm doing the XCOMs spinoff, um, and, and it, we're still in the early stages, only two books out. One of those slots is always going to be XCOMs for the next several years. So yeah. I have, I have, Two of my, let's say three, two of my th three slots are already filled. So I have a wild card slot that I can go back to one of my other series or I can write something completely new. This is how I'm starting to do like more of the sci-fi stuff. Um, I have kind of a sci-fi fantasy present day kind of, all, I, I don't want to say Stephen King-esque, but I mean kind of, you know, where it's a blend of a lot of things idea that I'm hoping to do in that, in that, um, open spot this year, uh, if I can map it out. But, um, so those, so, you know, coming back to a Quinn book or even the XCOMs now can't, is, is kind of easy in certain ways. I, you know, I know the characters, so I'm not developing any characters from scratch. So there, you know, mm -hmm. I know how they're going to react in certain situations and I know what needs to do. What I have to do is come up with a plot. Um, and there, and I, and I'm very, careful. I, I don't know if I'm always successful. I hope so. But I'm very careful of not try, not trying to repeat myself in a series because I hate those series that you read where every book is basically the same thing. Yeah. Now, yep. there will be aspects of the same thing just by the nature of the characters and the type of stories they are. But I want to give it a, a fresh enough twist. And I also have the in, in the Quinn series and, and, it, and it's starting to develop in the, uh, XCOMs too. I have a, what I call the overarching, um, story that goes, that covers the whole series, which is the yeah. interpersonal relationships of my, my, my team. And, and so I need to, to work that into every book and, and where they're at and what, because I, I also don't like, I don't, I can't write a book that, okay, I finished this book. I'm going to start the next book in the series and everything resets to zero and nothing they did in that last book will affect anything in this book. I, I don't do that. You know, it, it's, it's a, it's a, you know, it, it affects things, but I also want to write them in a way that if somebody picks up the, you know, 12th book in the series, that's fine. They're not going to, mm -hmm. um, you know, they're not going to miss any of the plot. They might not completely understand or, or might not get the full depth of the overarching story, but that mm. if it's enough to bring it back, they'll go back and read everything. Mm. So, um, you know, I, 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 I kind of, you know, I, I do a lot of that. So, um, as far as the, the actual process is, you know, as I, I as I'm getting ideas, uh, uh, especially if they're new ideas for just completely different stories and, and stuff, I'll basically just jot something down and email it to myself. And I put them in my ideas, ideas folder. Um, mm -hmm. or if I have an idea for a specific story, I may have created a folder specifically for that story. And so it, I'll jot that down, email it to myself and put it in that one. Um, mm -hmm. uh, typically, uh, when I, when I sit down to write, um, I'll have an idea of what the end kind of will be or what the basic kind of story is sort of and who's mm -hmm. involved. And, and, um, uh, and then I just sit down and write, I don't do, I haven't done outlines. I don't, uh, I, you know, I'm a pantser, not an outliner, you know, mm -hmm. writing from the seat of my pants. Right. So, yes. um, uh, I tend to do that. I am trying for 2018 yes. to change that up a little bit. And, um, I, I'm starting my new Quinn book on January, well, 2nd or whatever it is right after the holidays. And, um, 
and then I'll have the XCOMs and then I have that third slot. And what I'm hoping to do in the next couple weeks or before the end of the year is um, uh, come up with some um, uh, basic outlines of these books, not a full 20 page kind of thing, but um, a, a kind of just kind of a like, here's, here's a little bit of structure. And I, and I'm doing that because, um, I'm finding that, especially like with this last X Hong books, which turned out great in the end, and I'm very happy with where it's at, but there was a point there that I kind of got lost when I was writing it. And mm-hmm. I wasn't sure where, I mean, you know, I, the story was still going, but I wasn't really sure where it was going. And, and I didn't know if I, you know, if I was really going to make it, but I got to make it because, um, you know, I love to write and I want to continue to write, but it's also my job and I need to write and I need this Mm. book to be done so that it can come out by X date. Mm. And so I, if I'm getting lost, it's slowing me down and that's, and that has a ripple effect, you know, Mm. going forward. So I am going to, uh, try to do some, some basic outlines for all three books, hopefully before the end of the year. I'm not sure if I'll, I'll succeed, but at least wow. if I at least get the first book in and, you know, again, I'm not, I'm talking like a page or two yeah, and, yeah. you know, that's something I could knock out. And if I really think about it in a day or two for each of them and, mm-hmm. um, uh, and then see if that can at least keep me from having those few days of, well, what should I do now? Kind of thing. Yeah. Because that always happens every book, but I feel like I, I, I could be helping myself a little bit more, I think. And so that's, that's what I'm going to try to do anyway. So when you are indie promotion and getting the word out there is so important, what have you found to, yeah, and I have read some interviews with you where you said, this is the thing that you neglect because you, you know, you'd rather be writing, right? Exactly. But what, what, of the key things that you have found to be most effective or the key things that you ensure that you do in right. order to get the word out there? Right. Well, there are a couple of things that I always do, and that's um, I, I usually give out anywhere from 25 to 100. Uh, this time I think I gave out 100 copies of the book early. Mm-hmm to some people, um, for free with the, um, uh, understanding that as many of them as possible will, um, uh, publish, a a, a, a review mm-hmm. on or right around, um, release date. Um, because that's and, the reviews. Who are, are these people? How do you identify uh, they're these di- people? They're just different, uh, uh, in the, in the past it's been like, I'll do a, a, a it's not really a contest. Uh, I'll be on like Facebook or, or, or Twitter or something. And I'll say, okay, the first 25 people who respond to me, you're getting a free copy of this. Um, mm-hmm. plus I also have what I call my street team, which is, right. um, you know, I, I don't, I don't want to call them hardcore fans, but I mean, they're big, you know, big fans who have volunteered to help out on certain, you know, as I might need them. And we've expanded the size of my street team just recently. So, um, uh, so they all get copy of it automatically. Um, and, and hopefully they'll be, you know, um, doing that. So that, that's number one newsletter, um, you know, 
is, is, is number two, get, you know, just going to your fans and that, you know, having, uh, you know, I'll have some of my, um, writer friends on release date post about it on, on Facebook and whatnot. Um, just, to kind of spread the word and then kind of just kind of go from there. You know, um, mm. one of the things that I'm doing a little bit differently, or we're just, um, in the process of it doing, um, uh, is that I've actually hired, uh, uh, someone who is starting to help me get my marketing into the shape it needs to be. And, um, um, she's working with me, I think me exclusively or pretty, pretty exclusively to, um, you know, build my mailing list and figure out uh, ads that we should be doing and, and, and playing all this, because I know, you know, a lot of people have been having success with like Facebook ads and, um, perhaps Amazon ads and book club yeah. ads and, and all that stuff. And, and I've had, I've tried that limited, a little limitedly, mm-hmm. if that is even a word. And, um, uh, I've been okay with it, but I just don't have the patience for that kind of stuff. So I need somebody yeah. else to do that for me, um, yeah. which sounds ridiculous, but I, I, you know, luckily, I, it, you know, I, I, I would rather not spend the money, but I think I would rather spend the money to make money. And, sure. um, and Kate has been great and she's wonderful to work with for me. So, um, and we, it's, it's just, you know, we've only been in the first couple months of just kind of getting things in place. So I'm hoping that that will, uh, this is one of the things that I'm doing to um, uh, keep the 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 downward trend um, from continuing and and get us back if not if if it if not on an upward twin trend at least to level and then hopefully upward after that um, yeah. uh, but hopefully upward right away and I you know from from the things that I've been hearing from other writers and everything who've been doing for instance the Facebook and stuff. Um, it is very possible. And I have the, you know, I have this large body of work that can help me, um, uh, yes. utilize that in, in a really great way. I'm just not utilizing it. You know, I, I I'm yes. underutilizing my backlist and I need to do that. So, well, I have to say, considering you hate doing that side of it because you'd rather be <laughs> writing the fact that you're making in excess of six figures is pretty fantastic when you're obviously not putting in that much effort on the on pushing <laughs> making the snowball go fa- faster, right? So, right, right. Uh, um, I'd be really fascinated to check back into you six months from now to see whether you have felt that once you actually have put the effort in, um, whether you have found it, um, you know, that it's paid off. So, right, that oh, would I'd be love most to do that. Absolutely, yes. yeah, let's do that. <laughs> All right, so, um. Now, tell me what your so you, you've got Christmas coming up. You're writing yep. your outlines. You're probably going to write three uh, books next year. Have you structured that promotional aspect into your working day or week or whatever? You know what I mean? Because obviously, if you want to take it seriously, right? You, you. I assume you have a plan of some kind. Yeah. We're, we're, we're in the process of getting the whole plan working up and everything. So, uh, do I have it, um, in my schedule, uh, kind of, (laughs) um, (laughs) you know, but I have time in the day because I usually just write from like, I I write four or five hours. So, um, you know, that doesn't take up the whole day. Um, and, and, and and there's there's time to do other things as needed and everything. And again, I'm really hoping that Kate does a lot of this for me. 
<laughs> poor, poor Kate. Hopefully she's don't listen to any of this, Kate. <laughs> All right. So now when you are writing three books a year and you've yeah. you've um it's great that you are a fast writer. You've just said that you write four or five hours a day. Do you have a uh, – do you just write four or five hours or do you have a word count goal? Or... I have a word count goal. I work on a word count goal. Yeah, um, what's that goal? Yeah, it is um, anywhere from 2,500 to 3,500. A day. Um, a day. Yeah. Um, well, it's wow. a full-time job though. Remember, yeah, I'm, yeah, you know, yeah. it's a full-time job. So, uh, uh, I, I would rather, I mean, I, ideally if I'm getting 3000 words a day, I'm great. If I'm getting yeah. 2000 words a day, I'm not great, but I'm not, you know, it's not the end of the world. Um, I, I used to be at like four to 5,000 words a day, which is, it sounds as bad as it sounds. I mean, it is as bad as it sounds. It's, uh, uh, it would drain the, drain me unbelievably, but, yes. um, I, I have slowed down a bit from that. So, um, what if uh, you get 1500, do you force yourself to sit there till you get to the higher word count? Right. Well, what I have been doing lately is, um, I used to write at home and by used to, I mean, up until just like September mm-hmm. and, um, and I've been doing that for many years and I've found that I'm just getting too distracted at home. So I started going to the library to write oh, and I get there yeah. right at nine o'clock when it opens and I write until about a noon or so. And I'm hoping I get, I mean, nine to noon is not going to get me 3000 words, but no. nine to one might get me 3000 words. Um, maybe in a, in a pinch. Um, but what I've been doing is, uh, I'll, 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 when I, when I start to feel myself waning wherever I am, hopefully I'm over 2000 words at that point, or at least close to it. I'll go home, have some lunch, and then I'll ride my bike to another library for another like hour, hour and a half later in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. And I, and I'm, I'm hitting my three. So, because I have, mm-hmm. a, I'm, I'm rejuvenated and, um, and, I'm able to get my, get to, uh, get to my goal. Now this is a, a new process. So, um, I only use that for like half of the XCOM. So we'll see how it does for a full novel, um, starting mm-hmm. in January, but that's kind of my, my game plan for right now. I used to, the way I used to write and by used to, again, I mean, up until August of this year, um, I used to get up at like 4 a.m., and oh start and, and I'd be writing by, you know, five thirty or six and I'd write until one o'clock here mm-hmm. at home. And um, uh, it, it's fine. And uh, and I get about the same amount of work. But the thing is, you know, I get to a certain point, then I take like a half hour to check email, to go this or that or mm-hmm. that. Now, when I go to the library, I don't hook my computer up to the Internet. So mm. uh, so I don't take a break. I just keep going until sure. I. I can't stop. I can't do it anymore. And, um, at which point that's when I come home. So I, I, I'm getting it done in a faster amount of time. Um, Mm. you know, uh, it sounds very scientific and, and everything, but uh, you know, (laughs) it, 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 you know, you have to set up your own, the, 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 the parameters of your work 
environment and your work um, uh, skill set or not skill tool set, and 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 you use what works for you to get the creativity out. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and, so and so that's kind of what I'm doing. What and finally, what is what do you enjoy most about writing? I uh, what the. the I, you know, the easy answer would be saying writing the end. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, don't say that. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to say that. Uh, no, what I love most about is writing that unexpected scene or that unexpected character just kind of shows up on the page. And mm. or writing even a scene you're planning on, but you didn't really know how it's going to turn out. And and just the exhilaration you get as you're writing it, because you know, this is, oh my God, it's all coming together. This is so awesome. You know, um, mm. uh, th- that, that thrilling moment, which doesn't happen every day because writing is a job. You're not always going to be, um, you know, at this emotional high at every minute because you'll never get done and you'll kill yourself otherwise. But, um, uh, you know, I, I write when I'm not excited about writing it, I have to, you know, you have to keep writing. Right. Um, mm. but when you're writing, just, you get that pure scene or that pure character that just is just so, it just, you know, I, there have been times when I, you know, I feel like I got this shot of adrenaline after I'm finished because it's just so exciting and it, and, and, and it, and it works so well. Now that said, I may end up not keeping that scene in the book, but at the time I love those moments. That's what I love. Yeah. I think. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time today, Brett. It was great to chat to you. Well, thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murdercourse. There you go, Brett Battles. Hmm. Really great interview, Alec. He's- Prolific, like he's getting a Prolific. lot of words written every I year, know. isn't he? Like it's a, it's amazing how he, how he's doing that. Getting a lot of words, and I thought it was interesting how he said that um, he's pretty much publishing exclusively on Kindle. That he used to try the other platforms like Kobo and all the others, but so such a high percentage came through Kindle that he's just focusing entirely on that. And and mm. uh, you know, but good on him for for taking it on. And and I think an important part I think that he he knows, even though he says that he hates it, he's realised that building your author platform is vital if he wants to keep on growing, if he wants to make sure his Mm. sales figures keep on growing and the snowball Mm. effect keeps going. Mm. But, of course, many people can find out more about how to build their author platform through your course, aptly called How to Build Your Author Platform. (laughs) Inventively called. (laughs) 
which I think, of course, is vital for any author, whether you are indie publishing or not. And you can find out more on the exact steps that you need to take, create a blueprint for yourself that you should start thinking about well before your book is even close to being published. And find out more uh, about Alison's course at um, writercenter.com.au slash platform. All right. We're almost at the end of this week's episode. We are. We are. We really are. Look at us. (laughs) How did we get here? (laughs) I don't know. Um, You've got school holidays to contend with. This is great excitement for me because the four boys across the road will go on their holidays. Yay. Of course they will, she says, (laughs) cheering. Yes, yes. It's very handy that they obviously like taking their kids away. Anyway. I know. Um, what would you do if they were all home all day, Val? Wouldn't that be problematic for you? Go nuts. Anyway, uh, where do we find you online, Al? You'll find me at alisontait.com, A-L-L-I-S-O-N-T-A-I-T.com. You will find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T, and you will find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer. And you, Val, where do we find you? You'll find me at Valerie Koo, that's K-H-O-O, on Twitter and Instagram. And, of course, please do connect with us in the Facebook group. Just search for So You Want to Be a Writer podcast community, and we'd love to have you in there. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next time. Bye. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercentre.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writerscentre.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.